0: The teaching text today is Revelation 2, 12 through 17. To the church in Pergamum, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to the one who conquers i will give some of the hidden manna and i will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it the word of the lord
1: amen hey good morning good morning. Thanks so much for being with us this morning and worshiping with us. That was really, really beautiful and fun for me. Uh, hey, if you're if you're here and you're just joining us in this series, and uh, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus or maybe you have questions about Christianity, you're really coming at a great time. Because this in this series, we're hearing from Jesus where he's actually addressing the church and he's saying, hey, here are some problems that I have with your church. Here are some things I want to point out about your church that I actually don't like. Uh, And then he's going to go on to say things like, but here's what I do love about your church. And here's some things that I I want you to be and do as you function as a church in the world. So we're looking at at these seven churches in the book of Revelation. And these are letters that uh, Jesus actually spoke to John. John then took these letters and sent them to the seven churches. And it's interesting because every single one of these churches, uh, almost every single one of them, are all in really influential cities. Um, they're all in, uh, uh, they're really, really influential, healthy churches in some ways. And yet all of them, despite having great leadership and being incredible churches, all of them over time had started to drift in some really specific ways. And Jesus is addressing that drift. So speaking of, of drift, I want you to just think about this reality of, of, of the natural human tendency to drift over time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw out a motto and a mission statement of a really well-known organization. And I want you to see if you can guess what this organization is. Really well-known organization. So here is the motto. Truth for Christ and church. And then here's the, the mission. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. And therefore to lay Christ in the bottom is the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Can you guess what organization that is? Some of you may know. A a lot of you probably don't. If you know, then you win, like, the the nerd award of the day. Uh, This is actually Harvard. This is Harvard's mission statement in 1692. Crazy, right? Some of you, I saw a a wife point to her husband. It's like, nerd, right? Uh, So good job on that. Uh, uh, Harvard 1692. In fact, what's so interesting about this is Yale was started as a response to the secularization of Harvard, and yet both Yale and Harvard Now Today, you would never even know that they were started as institutions to train and develop Christian leaders, and here's the point. The point is this. It doesn't matter if it's a business. It doesn't matter if it's an organization or a church. Every human institution and every human individual is prone to drift and to get off mission And what's really interesting is something D.A. Carson said. He said that uh, what we found is that um, one generation believes something, the next generation assumes it, and then guess what happens to the third generation? They end up rejecting or neglecting it altogether. And what had happened in many ways in these churches is that type of drift. And Jesus is coming after 20, 30, 40 years as these churches have been going. And he's saying, hey, here's some things that you're doing really well, but I'm seeing some drift here. And I want to talk about that drift that you're experiencing. Jesus is the head and senior pastor of his church. He wants to get his church back on track and back on mission. So the church that he's addressing today is in modern day Turkey, as most of these churches are, in what was ancient Asia Minor. And the church that he's going to talk to is the church at Pergamum. And so here's what I want to do. I just want to give you some context and background to the city. Because if you don't understand the context and background of the city, then you're going to have a hard time kind of entering into what it must have been like to be a Christian in the city of Pergamum. Uh, Pergamum was an incredible uh, met- metropolitan area it was a key trade city for both uh, sea and land had nearly 200,000 people that lived in that city which in the ancient world that is that's a massive population think like Chicago or, or New York City I mean this is this is an incredible hub of a city, a culture that was just emanating out to the known world at the time. And Pergamon was known for a lot of things, but three things kind of made the top of the list. Three things were the most well-known in this church. The first was scientific advancements. They were known for scientific advancements, especially in the field of medicine. So even to this day, there are still aspects of, of medicine and medical study that we use from Pergamum. It's really interesting. Uh, the second thing they were known for was their library. They they had the second largest library in, in the entire world, and actually parchment paper. Parchment was invented in this city. Parchment is a translation of the word Pergamum. Pergamum paper is what parchment paper is. So this was a city that was known for having an extensive uh, knowledge and resources of learning, and people travel all over the from the th- from the known world at the time just to land in Pergamum and be able to attend and see this library. And then the most well-known thing in Pergamum, the thing it was known for the most, was actually its center for worship. And this is hard to visualize, so I want to show you a picture of kind of a modern rendition of what this must have looked like uh, in Pergamum. This is a, a drawing of what it looked like in this day and age. They had temples everywhere. Uh, most Roman cities or colonies would have one or two temples at max, but this, this city had multiple temples to multiple gods. Uh, it had a temple to Zeus And actually what's interesting is this temple was discovered in the the 1800s and the the archaeologist dug it up and dug up literally thousands and thousands of fragments and he actually carried it all. He took it to Germany and you can go to Berlin and see the temple to Zeus. It had the largest altar in the world at the time. And so this was the temple that you would go and if you wanted to sacrifice to any of the gods, you would actually do it here At Zeus's temple's giant. Uh, There's also a temple to Athena, there is a temple to Dionysus. There is a temple to Asclepios who was the god of medicine and healing. And by the way, the the, um, U.S. Department of Health symbol today is a snake wrapped around a staff, which is kind of a representation of what Asclepios would hold in his hand. Uh, So we even get our our little uh, logo for the U.S. medical staff from this god. And then finally, and this is the most interesting, uh, when you would walk into the city, you would see all these temples. It was kind of in the valley and all these temples were up here. And what was really interesting is one of the temples was a temple to Caesar himself. And this was actually the very first city in the history of the Roman Empire that built a temple to a Caesar. This happened in 29 BC, and it was uh, Caesar Augustus. And what happened was over time, this worship of Caesar, the cult of Caesar, became what Pergamum was known for. So yeah, you might worship Zeus, and you might worship Athena and Dionysus and these other gods, but no matter who you worshiped, you had to worship Caesar. And in fact, one of the the primary statements of the day, if you were just walking around in the city, one of the things you would hear multiple times a day was this propaganda statement that was frequently recited by Roman citizens, and it went like this, Caesar is Lord and Savior. Caesar is Lord and Savior. That was what you would say when you would greet each other in the marketplace. Hey, good morning, Caesar is Lord. Uh, hey, good evening, Caesar is Lord. You'd go to the theater and they'd start out the theater by saying, hey, Caesar is Lord, and everybody would chant that together. And, and, and all throughout the day and all throughout culture and every major holiday and every time you'd gather for anything important, Caesar is Lord was the statement that would be said. This city, here's what I'm trying to get you to see, was a city that was a center for worship and especially the worship of Caesar. So imagine for just a minute what it must have felt like to be a follower of Jesus in this context where you grow up and if you're a teenager or you're growing up and and you're in your early years of life and 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 your friends are all running off to go worship. Uh, at Zeus's temple and they're gonna have a party at Dionysus' temple and they're gonna there's some prostitution with other temple prostitutes taking place and it was just a common normal thing. And 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 then and then every time you'd go to a, a theater show every time you do anything in the city, you were expected to say the phrase, Caesar is Lord and Savior. I mean just imagine if you've been captured by Jesus and instead you believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior and you can't with a good conscience say that Caesar is Lord and Savior. This must, must have been incredibly, incredibly difficult to live f- faithfully as a follower of Jesus in Pergamum. In fact, if you just enter in for a minute, I want you to imagine what it must have been like to be a Christian in this city. It probably felt similar to being a Jewish person in Berlin in the 1930s. So m- let me throw up these images and let you see. Imagine being a Jewish person, and this is what your city looks like. And everybody there is 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 saying Heil Hitler and saluting Hitler, and it's just patriotic nationalism, and, and here you are, a Jewish, Jewish person, and, and what's happening in the culture is people are starting to, to be suspect of Jewish people, and, and then you, there's rumors that people are being arrested because of just being Jewish, and, and even some are being persecuted, and some are losing jobs, and some are even being put to death because they're Jewish. I mean, imagine the fear that you must have felt in your heart. That's similar to what it felt like to be a Christian In the city of Pergamum, and at this point, when John is writing these words of Jesus to this church, what was happening was suffering was on the rise. Persecution was on the rise. Um, People were starting to be arrested just for being followers of Jesus. Uh, Rome was cracking down and basically saying, "If you don't sacrifice to Caesar, and if you don't say Caesar is Lord, then we're gonna we're gonna throw you in prison, maybe even put you to death." And so this fear and just this culture of, of intimidation was very, very present in Pergamum. And so I want you, with all of that in mind, just let's go back and read uh, chapter two, verse 12, and listen to the, the ways that Jesus wants to speak to them. First, what he wants to do is just encourage this church at Pergamum. He wants to write to them and encourage them. So verse 12, here's what he says. And To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him... Who has the sharp two edged sword? I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who is killed among you, where Satan dwells. So, what Jesus does is he encourages church, and he does it in, in three primary ways. Here's the first thing he does he, he, he says, I'm the one who actually wields the sharp two edged sword. Now, that's a little strange, right? Like, I don't know if, if in 2018 that translates very well. Uh, most of you, when you wake up and you have your quiet time, uh, for those of you that still read your Bibles, uh, when, when you wake up and you have your, your time alone in the Word, like, you, you don't want to envision Jesus coming to you in the morning um, with a sharp two-edged sword. Like, hey, good morning. I've got a sharp two-edged sword. I, I need to talk to you about some stuff. That, that's not an encouraging picture for a lot of people. But if you are um, being threatened by the sharp two-edged sword of Rome, which was really in that day and age, a symbol of Roman power and of their authority to put you to death if you disobeyed or didn't say that Caesar was Lord. For Jesus to show up and say, hey, I wanna encourage you struggling, suffering Pergamum church, I'm actually the one who wields the sharp two-edged sword. It's not Rome, I have the authority and I have the power. That would have been incredibly encouraging for this church that was honestly facing the Roman sword. That's the first thing he says to encourage him. The second thing he says in verse 13, he says this. He says, I know where you live. I love that. I know where you live. Jesus doesn't just know about the church. He doesn't just know about where they're really, really healthy and also where they're off and where they need correction. Jesus also knows about the city and the context of which they live, which is incredibly encouraging. He's saying, hey, I know where you live, and then he adds this phrase, which is bizarre. He says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. And, and, and scholars, theologians have tried to figure out, like, what is he talking about? And most people agree that he's, he's talking about either Zeus's altar or either that or Caesar's altar. And he's saying, hey, I know where you live. It's the center for worship. And actually, what I want you to know is that's where Satan dwells. Like he's kind of set up shop in your city and he's running his, his counter mission against me out of your city. So like that's encouraging, isn't it? He's saying, hey, I, I've got the authority and the power and I also know how difficult it is. I know where you live. I know the complexities of your culture. I'm the one with the authority, but you live in a really, really tough city. You live in a tough culture. So that's the second thing he says. Then the third thing he says to encourage this church is he says this. He says, you have stayed faithful even when it's been really hard. You've stayed faithful even when it's been really hard. And what he talks about is how they've stayed faithful even in the witness of watching their their friend Antipas Get martyred for the faith. So, who is Antipas, and what's that story about? Well, Antipas, we think from church history, was appointed by the apostle John himself to be a pastor of this church. So he's one of the pastors of the church of Pergamum. And the story, the story is that he was outside of all of these pagan temples, and guess what he's doing? He's walking in the power of the Spirit, casting out demons. And he's walking up to people that are that are demonized, and he's casting out demons, and this angry mob, this crowd grabs him, and they hate that he's doing that, so they grab him, and they honestly, they throw him on Zeus's altar, and they demand that he says Caesar is Lord, and Antipas, this pastor, he, he refuses to say Caesar is Lord, so they burn him on Zeus's altar as an offering to Zeus, and that's how he died. And so you have this church, I mean imagine if one of our pastors was like just taken out in the city and burned as an altar to this other God and, uh, and, 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 and the, the whole church is watching this and Jesus is saying, hey, I know that you live in a tough city, I know that things have been really rough, I know that you watched Antipas die, but listen, you've stayed faithful in the face of suffering, you've stayed faithful. So this is incredibly encouraging. Jesus has some really beautiful things to say about this church. I know where you live, I know it's tough there, I know that you've stayed faithful, I've watched that, but also I'm the one that holds the sharp two-edged sword. I've got the authority and I've got the power. But what Jesus does next is what he does often in these letters is he moves from encouragement into a rebuke. And what Jesus' rebuke is is really interesting. He actually turns this idea of him holding the sharp two-edged sword. And instead of it being um, against the the Roman rulers and the government of Rome, what he does is he actually turns towards the church and he says, I'm the one that has the sharp two-edged sword and now I'm gonna come to you with my truth because you've drifted in some really, really sad ways. So here's what Jesus says to the church in verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. So here's the problem at Pergamum. The problem was that when it came to external attack and opposition that was obvious and outright, this church was incredibly faithful to Jesus. They didn't deny their faith in Jesus and they stayed faithful to his word. So when it came to like obvious full frontal assault, this church did a great job. But what had happened over time is that internally, this church started to drift and they'd started to embrace the false Really unhelpful, disruptive teaching of both Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Now, when some of you read those verses, you're like, this is exactly why I don't read this book of Revelation, because I didn't understand any words that were said in these verses. Like, I don't know who Balaam is, I don't know who Balak is, I don't know who the Nicolaitans are. Why all the weirdness? Well, what I want to do is just take a minute and explain what Jesus is unpacking here. And, and who these people are. And you need to kind of have some background on who these people are to fully understand what he's saying. So let's start with Balaam. Who is Balaam? Who is that? Well, you can read about Balaam in Numbers 22 through 24, which I know is your favorite book of the Bible. It's like your go to dev- devotional book in the morning. Get my coffee. Get my book of Numbers, and we're gonna spend some time with Jesus. And uh, and if you if you want to, you can go to 22 through 24 in the book of Numbers and read about Balaam. But if you grew up in church and you grew up in Sunday school, then you actually know about Balaam already. He's the guy with a talking donkey. Do you remember him? That's a weird story, and that's another sermon for another day. I don't have time. But he has a talking donkey. It's very strange. It's as weird as it sounds. And 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 here's the short story of Balaam. Balaam is a four higher prophet. So think like a mercenary prophet. And and so what's happening is the people of Israel have been redeemed out of Egypt, and they're making their way to the promised land, and they've been incredibly successful militarily and overpowering these other nations. And so what happens is you have this king, his name's Balak, and he's the king of Moab, and he's freaked out by the people of Israel. He's nervous. Like he thinks he's the next one on the list to get wiped out. By the people of Israel. So, what he does is he reaches out to Balaam and he says, Hey, I'll pay you all kinds of money to come and curse the people of Israel. And it's a fascinating story. Balaam goes, Okay, I'll do my best. And so he shows up to curse the people. But when he opens his mouth to curse the people of God, guess what happens? He ends up blessing them instead. Which is hilarious, right? This is why you should read numbers. It's incredible. And so then so so Balak the king is upset. He's like, No, 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 I paid you to curse them, not bless them. And he's like, Well, God's blessed them, and I can't not bless them. But I'll try again. So he does. He tries again. He he goes to curse them, and guess what happens? He blesses them again, but it's even better than the first time. And Balaam's like, "Ah, no, you're not getting this. I paid you money to curse them. So he he tries one more time, and again, he's not successful. He goes to to curse them, but instead he blesses them. And so he's just kind of confused, doesn't know what to do. Finally, Balaam says, here's here's the plan. Here's how we're going to sidetrack the people of God. Here's how we're going to get them off mission. Here's how we're going to remove them from the will of God. What he does is he says, what you need to do is bring in some beautiful Moabite women, invite them into a, a pagan feast, and just begin to like and enjo- uh, let them join in on some sexual immor- immorality and some sexual brokenness. And what will happen is these people of God will start slipping and drifting. And what's going to happen over time is they'll even start worshiping your gods. And that's exactly what happens. The people of God, they get off... Uh, track and off mission and Balaam is successful in diverting their attention away from God and they start engaging in sexually, sexually immoral practices that also leads them into worshiping the gods of the other pagan nations. What Jesus is saying is, hey, there are some of you Not all of you, a lot of you are faithful, but there are some of you, and now you're holding to this false teaching that's led you into a really, really unhealthy ethic of sexuality and a really unhealthy ethic of how you live in this world. You've, You've started to worship other gods, even though you hold fast to my name. So this is the teaching of Balaam. And then he mentions the Nicolaitans. He says there's some of you who also hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans who are these People. Well, th- this is a sect within the early church that honestly believed that it's okay to have Jesus as Savior, but you don't need to have Him as Lord. So you can have Him forgive you of your sins, and then you can just kind of live however you want to live. And you can call on the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior, but you can also twist and modify some of His teaching, and you can worship Zeus if you want to, or you can engage in sexually immoral practices if you want to. You can kind of it's your money, it's your body, it's your, it's your sex life, it's your gender. You do you, you do what you want to do because the grace of God is so big and his love for you is so incredible that he will cover it and it'll be totally fine. This is the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so in many ways what Jesus is saying to this church is, hey, you're kind of like the opposite of Ephesus. Do you remember what he says to that church, the very first church that we looked at? He says, you've got great doctrine." You, you love scripture. You've got, you've got incredible holiness, but you've actually missed your first love. You've fallen from your first love. But to, to this church, he says, hey, you've got love, you've got a lot of grace, but what you're missing is holiness. You, you, you've actually held a bad doctrine, and it's led, led you into some really disruptive ways to live. And so in summary, what had happened to this church is they'd embraced this teaching that had, got, had, had taught them to compromise with a culture just to make it easier on them in the way that they're living. And now, in the name of grace, they're just kind of living however they want, especially in, in regards to sexual immorality. In fact, in verse 14, the, the word for sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia, which is where we get our word pornography. And so that kind of gives you a description of what was happening with these people. They were just engaging in whatever sexual ethic they wanted to embrace in that moment. Confessed to be Christians, gathered every Sunday for worship, said that they believed uh, that Jesus was the Son of God, said that they wanted to follow Jesus, but there is a huge disconnect in their life and what it really is to follow Jesus. Now here's the crazy thing, like what does all of that have to do with us? Well as I read through this church and studied this church and I thought about my own heart and I thought about our culture here in Oklahoma. Man, there is so much crossover with this church and our broader culture in Oklahoma in regards to what it is to follow Jesus. Let me just kind of give a few of the things that I think if Jesus were to write to us that he would start poking on and prodding on. He might say to a lot of us, hey, you've been faithful. Good job on that. But real briefly, here's a few things that I think he might point out. The first is doctrinal drift doctrinal drift. This is what this church Pergamum was experiencing. They would slipped in their doctrine, and I think for you and I this is a temptation. Um, here, here's, here's what I mean. In Oklahoma we're really blessed in a lot of ways to not have um, full frontal external attack on the church. If you go to China if you go to uh, the Middle East, it's going to be different than it is here. There's going to be a lot of external opposition, and internally it's forced the church into a lot of health. But what you have in Oklahoma is because there's a lack of external opposition, which is a really beautiful thing. What it has created in a lot of us is just this, this uh, not, not desire to really study the Word of God or really get serious about what it is to be a follower of Jesus. So it's really easy to be a Christian and yet honestly be really biblically illiterate. And that's what we see over and over. Let's just be honest that most of us, we don't read our Bibles anymore. In fact, if you're under the age of 50, you probably rarely crack your Bible open. If you're over the age of 50, then you probably still have this concept that it is good to open up and read Scripture daily. But most people, they're really, really well known with their Netflix queue, but don't know much about Scripture. We're really caught up on social media and what's happening in our world and in the news and in political climate, but we don't really know the heart of God and His Word. So what's happening over time is, honestly, this biblical illiteracy that's just rampant in Oklahoma is creating doctrinal drift where we don't even really know what to believe anymore. And so this is fascinating. I read a recent article. It's fascinating and really sad. The article is titled, Christian, What Do You Believe? Probably a heresy about Jesus, says survey. And here's what this article pointed out. It's this massive survey that LifeWay Research conducted recently trying to assess the state of theology in the in the American church. And what they found was Americans with evangelical beliefs, 52% believe that most people are basically good. 51% say that God accepts the worship of all religions. And 78% say that Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God the Father. Now, let me just... Let me just clarify, Jesus was not a created being by God the Father. So if you're like, that's wrong, yes, that's wrong. Um, that's actually called a heresy. <laughs> you can read about that in all of church history for the last 2,000 years. Um, and so what's happening is, is just on some of the basic ideas of, like, Christian or people are basically good. That's not what the Bible actually teaches. And, you know, God accepts the worship of all religions. Well, that's actually not what the Bible teaches, that there's, there's one name under heaven whereby we must be saved, and it's Jesus. And, and actually, like, Jesus isn't a created being. He's the uncreated creator of all things. So yes, he became a human being and entered our world, but he did so to redeem us from our sins. So here's what you have is just doctrinal drift, and this leads to the next thing I want to point out, which is the temptation to compromise, Because what you believe always affects how you live eventually. What happens with a lot of us is this massive temptation to compromise. The less that you understand of the word of God and what he's inviting you into as a follower of Jesus, the harder it is to reconcile with what culture is demanding of you and how to live. And honestly, because we're more shaped by culture than we are by the word of God, what's happening is when it comes to sex and sexuality and gender and marriage and singleness and money and ethics, it's becoming increasingly unpopular to hold to the views that Jesus taught. And so what happens for us is just this temptation to compromise. Well, maybe culture's right on sexuality. Maybe it's okay to just be a Christian and sleep with whoever you want. Maybe it's okay, like, I mean, I, I've waited long enough and I can't get this person uh, to, to, I can't seem to find a follower of Jesus to marry, so I'll just start dating this person because maybe one day I could get him to church and I'll like missionary date or whatever. And over time, we just begin to compromise out of fear of the future or out of insecurity or out of the fear of looking like we're some backwoods idiots that still believe some of this ancient teaching so it leads to compromise. And this is both doctrinally and in our own personal life. And then finally, this leads to what I think is probably incredibly rampant in Oklahoma and even in our church, which is this idea of embracing cheap grace. Embracing cheap grace. And I want to just say I love the grace movement that has swept across uh, the U.S. in the last 10 years. I think that a lot of us grew up in a, a legalistic culture where we thought that God would honestly love us more if we kept all the rules and he'd be really, really mad at us if we, blew, if we you know, screwed up or did something wrong. And the good news of the gospel is that our righteousness is based in the finished, completed work of Jesus and not what we do. So there's so much about the grace movement that I want to celebrate. But I think what's happened is that we've actually embraced, in many ways, not the real grace of God, which leads to a transformation of life, leads to a disruptive power that changes the way that you live. I think what's happened is we've embraced a cheap grace, just like this church at Pergamum. What is cheap grace? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it like this in his excellent book, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And this is so common in Oklahoma where it's like, yeah, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but, but I, I really want him to rescue me of my sin and forgive me, but I don't want him to have control over these areas of my life. There are certain things about me and, and the way I want to live and the way I want to spend my money and my time and my sexuality. That's me, and so I'm not going to tell Jesus how to live, and he doesn't need to tell me how to live, but I still want him to be my Savior. I just in no way want him to be Lord over all things. And In Oklahoma, it's become very common to just say, yeah, that's okay. You can actually have Jesus as Savior without ever having him as Lord. And if you ever talk about holiness in the church, it's like, oh, well, you're a legalist and you need to recover grace. And if you ever call people to a different way of life, it's like, no, you're just a puritanical prude that's outdated and, and, and you need to get up with the times. And Jesus, he's writing to this church at Pergamum. He's saying, you've drifted doctrinally and it's actually led you to embrace cheap grace. And what we forget is that grace wasn't cheap It was costly grace It cost Jesus his life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it like this. He says, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it cost a man his life, your life. And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin. It's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought with a price, and what has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it's grace because God did not reckon his own son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. So he's inviting us, out of cheap grace, into a real, tangible experience of grace. So let me close like this. What's Jesus' invitation to this church who has doctrinally drifted and they've started to hold teaching that basically said, you can have Jesus as Savior, but live however you want to live? Well, here's what Jesus says it's an invitation and a promise in verse 16. He says, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. That word repent is metanoia. It means to turn around. He's saying, turn around from this teaching. Turn around to me. I'm not filled with anger and fury. I actually want to love you and I want to help you out of this. Then he gives them a promise. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one Who receives it? What is he talking about? A hidden manna, a white stone, a new name. Well, This idea of hidden manna, Jesus is saying, out of fear of your future, you're compromising with this pagan culture just to make sure that you can survive. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one who provides. In the Old Testament, I brought manna from heaven. and In the New Testament, Jesus says that he was the bread who came down from heaven. Jesus is saying, I'm going to nourish you, and I'm going to help you. I'm going to be with you. I will be your provision, and I will be your satisfaction. If you have an ear to hear, you don't need to compromise just to be okay in this life I will be the hidden manna for you he's saying and then he says this he says I will give you a white stone some of you are like thanks for that I'll put it on my shelf at home what's a white stone well in in that culture a white stone was incredible what they would do is if you were in court and you you were being accused of a crime once you were acquitted of the crime what the judge would do is he would hand you a white stone saying you are forgiven you are acquitted you're innocent you're not guilty you're free to go and what Jesus is saying is, I will give you a white stone. If you have an ear to hear, if you just turn to me, I will, I will embrace you in such a way that I will stand before you, and I will stand before humanity, I'll stand before all the attacks of the, the enemy, and, and I will say, this child belongs to me. They're acquitted, they're forgiven, they're free to go from their sin. And in fact, that white stone is also like a ticket into a banquet it's like a ticket into a banquet. So if you're like in a pagan culture and you're attending this huge festival, you had to bring a, a white stone with your name on it and you could ha, ha, like be brought into the banquet. And Jesus is saying, I, I've set a table for you and, and I'm gonna provide for you and here I'll hand you a white stone. It's not just that you're acquitted, you're also invited to a feast. And then the final thing he says is, I'll give you a new name. I don't know about you, but like I've sinned in ways where the thought has hit my heart and my mind I wish I could have a new identity. Have you ever done that? I wish I could be a new person. I wish I could start over. And what Jesus is saying, is, if you have an ear, that's what I'm offering you. I'm offering you a new identity. I will literally give you a new name and fill you with my Holy Spirit, and it'll be a completely different deal. You don't have to keep compromising with the world and living in these ways. I'm gonna acquit you, I'm gonna forgive you, I'll release you from your sin, and I'll give you a new name. This is what Jesus promises if you have an ear to hear it and repent and walk out of cheap grace and experience the real deal.